We'll hear argument first this morning in Fernandez-Vargas versus Gonzalez. Mr. Gossett. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Using the ordinary tools of statutory construction, it is clear that Congress intended the 1996 reinstatement provision to apply only prospectively. But even if Congress had no specific intent as to the retroactive applicability of that provision, under Landgraf, it would nonetheless not apply in this case. Applying it to aliens who reentered before IRIRA's effective date would give the statute an impermissibly retroactive effect. Before IRIRA, such aliens were entitled to seek and eligible to receive discretionary relief from deportation. Now, if the provision is applied to them, they are not. Wouldn't it be the same result if Congress decided, for example, to take away one of the available methods of uh, seeking discretionary review, just saying we're not going to have that available anymore? Congress might change the specific types of review that are available, and then this Court would have to — would either have to — uh, would have to engage in a land graph analysis of whether that But that would be that a pretty easy be. case, wouldn't it? I mean, if you have a mechanism saying some — an alien in this position can apply for, you know, this type of relief, this type of relief, or another, and they say, well, we're not going to allow this type of relief anymore. We're going to change those was that, that's a pretty easy case under Landgraf, isn't it? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. And the transition from suspension of deportation to cancellation of removal would fall into that category. However, the reinstatement provision talks in terms — in categorical terms of any forms of relief from deportation. It doesn't specify the particular types of relief that would be available. Why, Therefore, should, that, why should that make a difference as to whether it's retroactive or not? I mean, if, if it — it seems to me you, you look to the activity that it governs, and the activity that it governs is the, the deportation or removal from now on. Now, you, you could argue that, uh, if you want, that there are some due process violations in making that prospective uh, law affect uh, past activities as they do. I mean, let's — one of the examples given in, in Landgraf, or at least in my concurrence in Landgraf, was a change of the law of procedure so that expert testimony, which previously was not admissible, is now admissible. Now, the person who committed the crime that's involved in the next case that comes up when that new procedural rule is applied, he can say, well, you know, you've changed — you've changed the rules on me. When I committed the crime, the expert testimony wasn't admissible. Now it is admissible. That's not fair. Well, whether it's fair or not is something we can inquire into under the Due Process Clause. But nobody would say that that procedural change is retroactive. And it seems to me that's what's going on here. Two responses, Justice Scalia. Uh, The first is I think it's unfair to say that this provision merely regulates the procedure of removal. That wasn't my point. My Uh, point was you you look to the the activity which is governed by the new law. In the case of the the, uh, expert testimony, the activity governed is the trial. So that law applies prospectively to all future trials. So also in this case, this law applies prospectively to all future removals. QED, it is not retroactive. Now, you may have an argument, although I don't think it's a very good one, that there are due process problems involved in this prospective law, but I don't see how you can call the law retroactive. Justice Scalia, the portions of the reinstatement provision, besides for the provision barring other forms of relief, I would agree are simply procedural provisions. And, again, there might be due process challenges to those, but we're not raising those here. It's the provision that says that merely because you illegally reentered the country at some prior date, you will — because you illegally reenter the country, you will be ineligible, that I think can only fairly be categorized as — regulating the process of re-entry, not the process of removal. It's the fact that you re It doesn't affect his re-entry at all. His re-entry occurred. Uh, it, it, uh, how could it possibly have anything to do with his re-entry? Uh, under your Honor's 
analysis, a statute that said that if the Attorney General finds that an alien has reentered in the past, the alien may be sentenced to 15 years in prison, would also merely be uh, procedural and governing the sentencing rather than the underlying act of reentry. I think that par- that parallel hypothetical, which obviously would all- would violate the, du- the ex post facto clause, that would apply new penalties to the reentry. This, this law does not apply any new penalties to the reentry. It just, it just establishes a new regime for removing the person who has reentered. But the act of removing the right to seek adjustment of status, suspension of deportation, voluntary departure, that is a, a new penalty in uh, the Landon v. Placencia case, in fact, this Court called those substantive rights. It called specifically voluntary departure and suspension of deportation substantive rights. That's at 459 U.S. 26 to 27. Uh, therefore, I think it, it's unfair to say that the removal of those substantive rights is merely a procedural change. Of course, we don't even get into the question of whether there's a procedural change here or, or uh, a substantive change unless we get to stage two of the Landgraf analysis under the, uh, under, I would say, either um, the majority's approach in Landgraf or your approach, Justice Scalia, because the first stage of Landgraf is about this Court's deferring to Congress's specific intent as to the applicability of a statute. Because if Congress has decided whether a statute should apply prospectively or retroactively, this Court defers to that outside of the ex post facto context. And I think here it's clear that, in fact, Congress intended the 1996 right, statement provision to apply only prospectively. Has any — a number of courts have considered this question — have any of them accepted your first your argument that the statute is clear that it is non-retroactive? Uh, yes, Justice Ginsburg. Both the Sixth and the Ninth Circuits have accepted that argument. Um, they've accepted it in a slightly different form than we are currently raising, uh, because before the government's brief in this case, no one has laid out the history of the 1950 and 1952 statutes as carefully as the Solicitor General's office now has. But both the Sixth and Ninth Circuit have held that this statute is exclusively prospective by a comparison between the 1952 Act and the 1996 Act. I'd, I'll, I'll have to look at those decisions. It was my impression that they did indeed hold that it was retroactive, but not on the ground that Congress had clearly spoken to the point so that you didn't need any further inquiry. Both. They didn't use the term clearly because, of, of course, as we explained in our brief, there's an asymmetry in retroactivity analysis, and using the ordinary tools of statutory construction, one can demonstrate a prospective intent on the part of Congress. But both the Sixth and the Ninth Circuit in the Bajani case and the Castro-Cortez case did stop their retroactivity analysis at stage one of the Landgraf inquiry. Yeah, but I think that's because they were using the, the version of stage one that you were using which includes in the consideration of whether Congress has been clear an inquiry into whether the, whether the law is retroactive or not, which, as I understand it, should be left to stage two exclusively. Uh, I, in, in, your, your, your analysis in your brief mingles the two. It says one of the factors that you can take into account in, in stage one is whether it's retroactive. And as I, I don't understand Landgraf to speak that way. I thought you're supposed to use all other indicia of uh, legislative intent other than the normal rule against retroactivity in deciding congressional intent. And then you go to stage two, which is where retroactivity comes in. in- both the St. Cyr's case and the Lynn case, this Court did invoke the presumption against retroactivity in its Stage 1 analysis. But more generally, I don't think we need a presumption to win this case. I think that under Stage 1, under an inquiry into congressional intent, what we have in this case is a a history of Congress providing for the reinstatement of deportation that goes back to 1950. In 1950, Congress passed a reinstatement provision that said that for the specified aliens, and it was only a subgroup, if they were deported and re-entered, they would be uh, — that their previous deportation order would be reinstated. The INS inter- — and that, that statute's quoted at page two of the government's brief. 
The INS interpreted that statute as applying only prospectively and only applying to an alien who was deported and therefore obviously reinstated, uh, re-entering after the effective date of that statute. Now, in 1952, Congress, evidently dissatisfied with an interpretation, uh, with a reinstatement provision that was only prospective, added the before or after language to the reinstatement provision. They said, under this 1952 Act, if you were deported either before or after the effective date of the INA, your, re- your deportation order can be reinstated. But in 1996, Congress removed that before or after clause. Congress expanded the scope of reinstatement and provided that a much broader category of mm. reentrants could be subject to reinstatement. But as, as the government points out, that, uh, that either before or after uh, applied to when you had been deported. Yes, Justice Scalia. Not to when you reentered. And what we're, what you're arguing for here is a rule that, uh, that, that goes from the time of reentry, not from the time of deportation. So it's not really a parallel. Actually, Justice Scalia, under our stage one argument, we are now arguing that, in fact, the government is right, that the, uh, the 1952 Act was tied to the date of deportation. What we don't understand is how the government thinks that helps its case, because the obvious and necessary consequence of that is that the removal of the before-after clause in 1996 must imply that the 1996 provision only is triggered by post-enactment deportations. Well, that's and, an, that may be a reasonable inference, but I think it's a real stretch to say that it clearly establishes it. When you're talking about a statute and you say something's clear, you want to be able to point to actual words. And on the other side, the government points out that elsewhere in IRIRA, uh, Congress specifically delineates when it wants the statute to apply prospectively only, and they did not do that in this case. They also specifically delineated in some context, Mr. Chief Justice, that it would be retroactive. Uh, the government's primary comparison, and I think it's an important one for this Court to focus on, is to the criminal reinstatement provision, uh, which is Section 1326, 8 U.S.C. 1326. Now, the government asserts that that provision is exclusively prospective, and therefore that the comparison should be that in this context the reinstatement provision must be retroactive. But In so arguing, the government hides in ellipses in its brief on page 14 the actual text of the uh, provision of the criminal reentry, the temporal applicability of the criminal reentry provision. What Congress actually said was that deportations that predate IRIRA could trigger reinstatement, but reentries post, only reentries postdating IRIRA could trigger it. So, in fact, what Congress was doing in the criminal context was reaching back and saying, we're changing the consequences of pre-enactment deportations, but not pre-enactment re-entry. So, the comparison, if anything, I think, strengthens our case. Uh, I'd say... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, you lost that, me there. Can I'm you, sorry. I'm that's on page... page tw- it's quoted on page 27, note 15 of our opening brief. It's section... 324C of IRIRA. I, I can read it exactly. The amendment made by subsection A, expanding the criminal reentrant provision, shall apply to departures that occurred before, on, or after the date of enactment of this Act, but only with respect to entries and attempted entries occurring on or after such date. The government omits the fact that it applies to deportations pre-IRIRA. So I think the, the, uh, there are two cases that this Court has decided. How, I don't see how that undermines their point that when Congress wants to specify that something shall apply prospectively only, as they quote, only with respect to entries occurring on or after a date, they spell it out. And they did not similarly spell it out in the provision on, that you suggest is prospective only. No, Justice, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I agree that this doesn't explicitly spell it out in the, the criminal provision, but I don't think we need to explicitly spell it out, uh, we, that, that this Court needs to find that Congress explicitly spelled out the prospective applicability. I think that the Lynn case and the American National Red Cross case both demonstrate that when Congress changes text over time, it, it matters. In the, the Lynn case, of course, there were two provisions, one of which had retroactivity language, the other of which had none, and, con- and this Court intuited that, therefore, Congress must have meant that the, lang- the, the section without retroactivity language would be exclusively. I, I wish we could get some new vocabulary. T- terminology is, is destined. And I, I really don't follow the discussion of speaking about whether 
it was prospective or retroactive. I don't think whichever way it applied, it is retroactive. But the issue still remains, did Congress intend uh, pre-ARIRA uh, reentries to be, uh, to be covered or not? I, what, what's I would trigger? consider that still prospective. But just just note my I, I, I think that I don't go along with you when, when you force this terminology on me. Whether Congress intended it to be retroactive, as I see it, the issue is whether Congress intended it to apply to reentries that occurred before ARIRA was enacted. I would not consider that retroactive, but it's still an open question what Congress intended. Justice Scalia, I agree. I, I agree that that's for purposes of, that, that terminology is better is better for stage one. It's whether it was triggered by a pre-enactment deportation or reentry. Uh, Aren't there several possible explanations for why Congress would leave the before or after language out of the out of the new provision? Um, they might have wanted it just to be decided under the Landgraf uh, framework. Isn't that one possibility? Or they might have thought that before or after referred to the enactment of the uh, the INA, which would be 1952, and therefore irrelevant by the time. This was passed. I don't think either of those possibilities is plausible, Justice Alito. The first isn't plausible because we know that the INS had already interpreted the 1950 Act, which was silent as to applicability, to be exclusively prospective. And the second uh, is implausible because the, the before-after provision in the 1952 Act, which would presumably have been brought forward the 1996 Act had they wanted to, specified the date of enactment of this Act. It would have been about this Act. And, in fact, the Senate proposal uh, to modify the first — the provision also would have left it in terms of this Act, not of a specific date of 1952, which would have been the, the INA date. More, more generally, I think that with this history of the 1950 Act, the 1952 Act, and the 1996 Act, any interpretation of the 1996 Act as being retroactive or as being ambiguously retroactive uh, doesn't pay adequate deference to Congress's choice over time that this Act should apply um, prospectively in 1996. Why, why would — I find it difficult to understand why Congress — wouldn't have wanted this to apply to illegal entrants who had come in before ARIRA. Bear in mind, these are people who have been deported once, already deported once, and then, in violation of the law, come back in again. And there was a regime for uh, deporting them, uh, which allowed certain uh, um, uh, variations, which are eliminated by ARIRA, uh, permission for them to stay. You really think Congress wanted to keep faith with the people who had already have be, having been deported once for illegal reentry, illegal entry, come in again? And you think Congress says, "Oh, well, you know, we, we, we have to keep faith with these people who are violating our law, and and not uh, and, and not deport them." Uh, except under the conditions that existed when they broke the law to reenter. I find that a very what should I say, touching uh, uh, <laughs> attitude for Congress to, to have. Justice Scalia, clearly Congress was attempting to change, to increase the um, disincentives to reentry. At the same time that they uh, modified the reinstatement provision, they ex extended the criminal reentry provisions. Not so only the, the disincentives, they were trying to get out of the country people who were here illegally, two-time losers who were here illegally for the second time. The question, however, though, is not whether they were trying to change that consequence. The question is whether they did so retroactively, because this Court presumes that if Congress is trying to change the consequences of an action that has occurred in the past uh, in substantive ways, Congress should say so explicitly, because uh, as you have said in previous decisions, that it is a foundational principle of Western law that, uh, that, primary con that the consequences of primary conduct are judged as of the but is that of so conduct. here? I want to know if your client uh, had known about this law or gone to a lawyer and said, what do I do now, wouldn't the lawyer have said or would he have said, just leave, leave the country quick before you're caught? 
Now, when you get back to Mexico, you can apply and point out you've married an American citizen, and then you'll be able to come in in all likelihood. And if I'm right about that, the Act does not attach new consequences to old behavior. It attaches new consequences to new behavior, namely the act of staying within the United States when you could leave. I, I presume, Justice Breyer, you mean at the time Congress enacted IRARA? I mean, when this particular provision was passed, a week later he goes to a lawyer, and the lawyer says, you better get out of here fast, because if you're caught while you're here, you're married now, and you won't be able to take advantage of that. It would be terrible. So go to Mexico. Then there's no problem. And if, in fact, I'm right, you see what I'm saying? I find your argument excellent on the first part, but so is the government's. So I think there's a kind of wash there, so I'm looking to the second part. Uh, And there you've just said it attaches new consequences to old behavior. So I'm asking you if it doesn't attach the new consequences to old but necessarily plus new behavior, namely remaining. Uh, no, Justice Breyer, it does not. Because had he left in 1996 upon enactment of IRIRA, he would have been inadmissible for five years uh, oh. as a result of having left. Whereas otherwise, if he'd stayed in the country, he would be eligible to apply for suspension of deportation. Somebody mar- if you get married, if you're outside the country and you marry an American, you're married to an American, you can't come in for five years? As a result of his initial having re-entered as a within five years, order. Uh, as a result of his, his re-entry five, within five years of the date of his 1981 deportation, he would be ineligible for readmission for five years had he left the country. So his choice is this act, or in which case you never can get back if you're caught, or go to Mexico wait five years. Or Ten to twenty years, if if you, ten to twenty, 10 to 20 years. years, if you're caught under this act, is my understanding. Uh, depends uh, the, the government and we just dis- dis- no, no. I mean, he either stays in the United States, yeah. and ten to twenty. Years. No, if he stays in the United States, he's eligible and, and is entitled to apply for these forms of relief from deportation. Then he will, then he can become an American citizen or become a lawful permanent resident as a result of the forms. If of you relief lose that this existed. case, if you lose this case then his choice would be stay here, get caught, and you never can come back, or 10 to 20 years. 10 to 20 years. I see. Or go to Mexico, and you can come back in five years. Yes. But, but of course, at the time, pre-IRIRA, the, the choice was stay in the country and seek, uh, and seek Amer- uh, citizenship through these other routes. And so the — the forcing of him to leave is itself a retroactive effect of the enactment of this act. Well, because in, 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 this, in this case, uh, he was married after the effective date of the new statute. Yes, Justice Kennedy. Did, uh, did Judge McConnell in the Tenth Circuit suggest, because he discussed this, suggest that the result might have been different if the marriage had been before? Yes, he did suggest that, and several. Well, why, why would that be consistent with his with his analysis? Justice uh, Judge McConnell and uh, several other courts have focused on the types of relief that an alien was eligible for as of the effective date of IRIRA. We think that's the, the wrong first inquiry. We think that the, the, the way to approach the stage two analysis is uh, on a categorical basis because Congress in the statute said that at the time of reentry, the mere act of reentry wouldn't categorically preclude you from seeking any forms of relief from deportation. And so, had Congress wanted to change that, it would have cha- it would have had to do so retroactively on a categorical basis. But even if one accepts Judge McConnell's analysis of the forms of relief you're entitled to as of that date. Uh, at the very least, at that point, my client would be eligible to seek both voluntary departure and cancellation of removal. We also think he also should be eligible to seek adjustment of status, because although it's true that he is not, was not at that point married to his now wife, uh, adjustment of status was a def- is a defense from deportation, and he would have been able to get married even if put into deportation proceedings. And given that, at that point, he and his now wife had already had a um, eight-year-old son, well, but there would be no question that it was a real marriage. It, it does point out that, that uh, your argument is a difficult one because his expectation that you argue for is that, number one, he has an expectation that he'll be able to adjust his status even after Congress has changed the law respecting <laughs> reinstatement. I don't think that's a, a the, the, difficult this, analysis. This is a far-reaching expectation on his. The only expectation, Justice Kennedy, that we are uh, proposing is that 
my client and aliens generally, because this is a, a, an analysis that must be done on a, a categorical basis, reasonably expected that Congress wouldn't change the consequences of their, of their re-entries far in the past without doing so explicitly. Am I wrong in thinking that re- readjustment based on his marriage was not one of the modes of relief that he could have had in 82, or that, that didn't come in until much later. Is that not so? That is true, Justice Ginsburg. So, uh, was any, so that was a, a consequence that certainly wasn't taken away from him because it wasn't there in 82. In 1982, Justice Ginsburg, my client reasonably presumed that the act of reentry, while itself a crime and while itself rendering him deportable, wouldn't categorically preclude him from seeking relief from deportation if at a future date he might become eligible to adjust in some way, either through suspension of deportation by having been here for seven years or by marrying an American citizen or, or by having a reasonable claim for asylum. All of these were routes to stay despite illegal entry or reentry. Even Why would he what? think that? Why wouldn't he just think being here illegally, he is subject to being deported under such rules as the country has for deporting people who are here illegally, whatever they may be from time to time. That, that would be my expectation if I came in illegally in violation of the law. I'm saying I'm here at the sufferance of, of, of the country. I shouldn't be here. And, and whatever rules they have for kicking me out are, are the rules that I'll have to abide by. The implications I'm lucky not of to be your- in jail. Justice Scalia, the implication of your argument is that a wrongdoer has no reasonable expectation in the law staying constant. But, of course, uh, both the Hughes Aircraft and the Landgraf decisions are, are cases in which a, a, a conduct was clearly illegal or unlawful at the time it was done, but nonetheless a change in the law would retroactively change the implications of that unlawful conduct. And this Court in both those cases held that it was that, that such change cannot be affected retroactively. Well, exactly under the was exactly here. I think it was he, he pled guilty on, under one set of expectations. And that's what the Court fastened on. Isn't that so? Uh, that's true, Justice Ginsburg. However, the, the, the parallel in St. Cyr is that at the time uh, the immigrant in St. Cyr pled guilty, he was presumptively deportable as a result of having uh, pled guilty to a crime. He was eligible to seek a discretionary relief from deportation, which this Court called a matter of grace in the St. Cyr decision. Well, he Similarly, might not have here, pled guilty if, if there was a different set of rules. I thought that was what drove the Court's opinion. It's unclear to me whether or not the St. Cyr case would also generalize to someone who simply was uh, convicted, uh, convicted of a crime at that date, and there's a debate in the lower courts about that. But more generally, in my client's context, at the very least, his decision to stay in the United States for seven years and thus become eligible for suspension of deportation and then not to leave thereafter was itself a very similar choice to that of uh, the alien in St. Cyr. It's, it's a conscious decision to uh, remain here rather than to leave. If he had left voluntarily under the pre-96 law, would he still have been subject to criminal prosecution for his prior illegal entry if he had later come back into the United States? I'm not sure, Your Honor. I don't know. Okay. If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Gossett. Mr. Srinivasan? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 1231A5 aims to streamline the removal of aliens who were already removed but have since illegally reentered. The Congress that enacted ARERA did not intend to grandfather the provision and exempt those aliens who were already in the country illegally. Rather, the focus on streamlining the rules for getting illegal reentrants out of the country is fully applicable and indeed is especially applicable to illegal reentrants who were already in the country at the time of ARERA's enactment. Three considerations, I think, point to the conclusion that Section 1231A5 is addressed to removing illegal, illegal reentrants from the country, including aliens who are already in the country, and that the provision is not so much addressed to the antecedent act of illegal reentry as such. The first consideration I would point to is the operation of the provision, and it's useful to bear in mind the following possible scenario, in which a person who's been removed 
illegally reenters the country, but then returns to his home country. Now, in that situation, the individual would have engaged in the act of illegal reentry, but Section 1231A5 simply would have no relevance to him whatsoever, because what Section 1231A5 seeks to do is to remove someone who's found in the country on the basis of their previous removal order. Now, if they've engaged in the act of illegal reentry, but then have gone back, Section 1231A5 simply is not relevant. And I think that goes to show that what the statute is focused on is not the act of illegal reentry as such, but rather removing someone who's found in the country and who's determined to be an illegal reentrant. Now, that operation stands in significant contrast to the criminal prohibition against illegal reentry, which is at 8 U.S.C. 1326, and the prohibition against illegal entry, which is 8 U.S.C. 1325. With respect to both of those provisions, the act of illegal reentry or the act of illegal entry necessarily triggers the operation of the criminal prohibition. And there's nothing that the alien can do after the fact to take himself outside of the, of the purview of that criminal. And those, I'm sorry? And those provisions are specifically recited to apply only to reentrants after the effective date. That's right. Congress specifically indicated in the text of ARERA that it's, it understood the distinction between the way in which those provisions operate and the way that 1231A5 a operates. The ARERA expanded the scope of the criminal prohibition on an illegal reentry, and it also, for the first time, imposed civil monetary penalties on the act of illegal entry. There were civil fines, and then uh, I think of 50 to 250 dollars per episode. But what's critical is that with respect to both of those changes, Congress specified in the terms of ARERA that they would only apply on a prospective basis to acts of illegal entry or reentry that post-dated ARERA. Now, Congress made no such specification with respect to 1231A5, and I think that's significant because what that indicates is that Congress understood that that provision, unlike the two criminal, pro- unlike the two criminal provisions, focuses not on the act of illegal reentry as such. Well, but let rather- me go back to the criminal provision for a second. Uh, I take it your answer to the question I asked your brother a moment ago is that if the individual uh, re-enters and hence has committed a criminal offense and later voluntarily returns to, in this case, to Mexico, that the, the criminal violation, in effect, would not in any sense be canceled out. That's right. Uh, and that if he returned, he could be prosecuted for the prior re-entry. And I suppose, in theory, I don't know what the extradition treaty is. In theory, he, he might be subject to extradition for it. That's right. Odd way to. That's right, Justice yeah. Souter. Okay. The criminal act is completed at the moment that the criminal re-entry is completed, and nothing that he does afterwards can there's, take it. There's no forgiveness. Problem. That's right. That's right. Which is different, obviously, from the operation of Section 1231A5. Now, another consideration that I think indicates that Section 1231A5 is focused on the timing of the removal as opposed to the timing of reentry is to take into account Section 1231A5 in the context of Section 1231 as a whole. Section 1231 was a new provision that was enacted by ARERA, and Congress entitled it to, quote, detention and removal of aliens ordered removed, close quote. And as its title indicates, the provisions in Section 1231, like 1231A5, all pertain to executing an order of removal against an alien who's been ordered removed. For example, those provisions concern the time period within which somebody is to be removed. They address the travel of somebody to the removal destination, the identification of the countries to which they may may be removed, the payment of expenses. But all of them address the execution of an order of removal. In the same way that Section 1231A5 does, Section 1231A5 speaks to the execution of the pre-existing order of removal, the one that the alien had in place when he illegally re-entered the country, but it's of a piece with those other provisions in the sense that it, like them, addresses the timing of removal rather than speaking to the act of illegal re-entry as such. The third consideration, I think, that points to the same conclusion, which is that Congress is focused prospectively on removals that post-dated ARERA rather than retrospectively, in some sense, on acts of illegal re-entry that predated ARERA, is that at the time of illegal re-entry, as we explain at length in our brief, an alien would have had no eligibility as a categorical matter and at least as a practical matter for the three types of relief that petitioner invokes. And those three types of relief are adjustment of status, suspension of deportation, and voluntary departure. Now, with respect to adjustment of status, as the colloquy earlier indicated, at the time that petitioner illegally re-entered the country in 1981, up until 1994, which is just two years before ARERA, adjustment of status was categorically unavailable to illegal entrance and illegal re-entrance. In that light, it's, one would be hard-pressed to, to assert 
that an illegal reentrant would have performed that act in reasonable reliance on the availability of adjustment of status. It was simply you, you don't want it to, unavailable. You don't want us to decide it on that ground, do you, so that all future cases you'll have to decide whether he came in before 94 or after 94? That, that, that's right, Justice Scalia. I think a, a virtue of focusing on the fact that this statute is addressed to the removal rather than the act of illegal reentry is that it decides once and for all what the temporal reach of the statute is. And well, but your point, though, I mean, someone illegally reentering at that time might not have had a reasonable expectation of the availability of discretionary relief. On the other hand, someone in, in uh, the, the uh, petitioner's position, after all that had happened, did have a fairly good case under those, uh, those provisions that were no longer available. Well, th- that might be, Mr. Chief Justice, but his claim is that Section 1230.5 should be construed not to apply to anyone who illegally reentered before ARERA. And so I think the proper frame of reference is to look ex ante at what someone would be thinking had they illegally reentered before ARERA, because he seeks to treat everyone who illegally reentered before ARERA as a uniform category. And someone entering says, well, obviously, if I'm, I'm uh, detained the day after I enter, I'm not going to have a very good case. On the other hand, if I'm not, and I happen to make a life here, and I'm here for 20 years, and I get married, and I have a child, I'm going to have a strong case, and he's, gonna, he's willing to take his chances. Well, two responses. First of all, that's not true with respect to adjustment of status, because someone who reentered before ARERA, at least if they reentered before 1984, couldn't have imagined that their marriage to the United States as a citizen would have given them a basis for adjustment, because adjustment simply was categorically unavailable to illegal entrants. Did you say 84 or 94? 1994. I'm sorry. I, 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 in 81, when he illegally reentered through 1994, adjustment of status was categorically unavailable to people who illegally reentered. So he couldn't and have relied on the availability of that form of relief. And the executive couldn't waive that. You say categorically uh, it, it no, simply no wasn't possibility for discretion. It simply wasn't provided for by statute. A, pre, a precondition of eligibility for adjustment until 1994 was that um, the person was not an illegal entrant. Well, so could, the, could the INS have um, just stayed its hand in I mean, I, I suppose they could have stayed their hand in the sense that they wouldn't have applied the immigration laws to begin with, but I don't think there no. would have been any basis to stay their hand in the sense of granting can't imagine that. that. I'm sorry? I say I cannot imagine that. No. I, but I, I didn't understand this now. I guess I uh, don't. Forget the 94-96 period. Suppose sure. it stayed the same throughout. Uh, would you say then that someone who came illegally into the country and he's caught, and he's married to an American. There's no possibility he can stay no matter what, no matter how appealing. Is that the answer? Not with respect to adjustment of status. I'm, I'm, but you're talking technically. No, I'm speaking Maybe technically there's some other way he could stay. What's the other there way? Is, there, there's another form of relief that yeah. conceivably could give him a claim. Which was what? Suspension of deportation. All right. Well, which the it comes to the but, same thing. So that, that what, what I'm thinking is that a person who is here and they marry an American, all right, they marry a citizen. Now, before this act was passed, there was a way that if they're really good, let's assume they're the best human beings around, and the attorney general finds all that out, and everybody knows this is like a saint, and they say, okay, you behave well enough, you can stay. Now, after the act is passed, all those relevant actions have taken place in 86, long before. Now, there's absolutely nothing they can do. All they can do is go home, and now I've learned that when they go home, they will be told you cannot come back no matter what for five years. Now, that's a pretty harsh consequence to separate yourself from your family or have your family come to a foreign country. So if I think the first part of this is a wash, you have a great argument, they have a great argument, and I look to the second part, does it attach new consequences? to old and unchangeable behavior. I say, yes, it sure does. Now, why doesn't it? Well, there, there's a lot in that question. Let me just try to address it one step at a time. With respect to whether it attaches new legal consequences, I think you were right, Justice Breyer, earlier in asking about what would happen if he had gone back voluntarily. Now, it's true that if he had been removed then there would have been the consequence in the sense that there would be a period of inadmissibility, at least presumptive inadmissibility, a period which, by the way, is subject to waiver, which he could apply for. 
But if he had just gone back voluntarily after Arrera's enactment, or indeed in the six-month window between Arrera's enactment and, and Arrera's effective date, my understanding is that there would have been no presumptive period of inadmissibility. Ah, so then you're saying the answer I got before was wrong. I, th- I that think in that's fact, right. In fact, I now have my client in. He's come after E. e-, e- <laughs> has been enacted, and he says, I've heard about this thing, E. e- Ryra. And what in heaven's name am I supposed to do? And the lawyer says, get out fast, next train, go back. And if you get across that border, you're safe, because at that point you can apply and you're a saint and you've been married, they'll let you right in because they'll find out. That's what your view of the law is. That, that's my understanding of the law. It's be the one way or the other. Well, the five-year the five period that um, petitioners, Mr. Gossip was referring to, I think relates to the period after the point in time at which somebody's deported or removed. And so his initial deportation... Oh, and, and this is not. I was saying the question would, would be, is, is this act attaching consequences to old things that you couldn't do anything about? And you're saying, not entirely. You can. You can leave. In which case, you'll be no worse off except for the train fare. That's right. Okay. That's that, what I understand. That person has not illegally re-entered the United States? He's gone back, but he did illegally re-enter the United States. He wouldn't be covered by the same provision that we're talking about? No, you're you're right, Mr. Chief Justice, that that he's illegally re-entered, but he wouldn't be covered by this provision because all this provision seeks to do is to remove him. And once he's gone back, this provision simply ceases to have any relevance to him at all because he's, in some sense, self-removed. And so he, any ineligibility wouldn't stem from this provision. It would come from somewhere else. And as far as I'm aware, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be subject to the five-year period of inadmissibility that's imposed by a separate provision and that would attach if he were removed because, by hypothesis, he wouldn't have removed. He would have gone back on his own accord. And, and even if he was, that was waivable. That's right. That's subject to waiver, which ju- is another ju- Just point. as he doesn't automatically get uh, admitted because he, he's uh, married, does he? Right. That's discretionary that's, that's, as well. That's discretionary. Well, it's at the end one of the day discretion well. and another discretion. Right, and and we we lay this out in some detail in a in a footnote in our brief, and that's at um, that's at pages thirty nine to forty. But that footnote, I should point out, doesn't deal with your hypothetical, Justice Breyer, which is that he goes back on, on his own accord. And I think in that situation, what he would do is what people ordinarily do when they're seeking to gain lawful admission to the country, which is to apply for admission on the basis of what would have been whatever relationships he could have asserted at that point. Now, he wasn't married at the time that uh, Arira was enacted, so he wouldn't have used his marriage as a basis for coming in because he wasn't married as of yet, but I think that cuts more against him rather than his favor because, of course, a child. May I he, ask had, this? he had a relationship to a child in the United States, and couldn't that have counted for suspension of deportation or removal, whatever terms I use now? He did it, for a hardship uh, claim, a parent-child relationship. That's right, Justice Ginsburg. It would count for purposes of suspension of deportation, which was renamed cancellation of removal. But that form of relief is available to somebody who's inside the United States. And I was meaning to address the situation where he has voluntarily removed himself from the United States and is seeking admission from presumably Mexico, in which case suspension of deportation wouldn't really come into play because deportation wouldn't be on the table. But you're right that if he had stayed in the country, suspension of deportation is a form of relief that he would have been eligible for for pre-arrera. But with respect to suspension of deportation, I think it's important to understand that that form of relief required a period of presence in the United States of seven years before one could gain eligibility to seek that relief. He was here here for 20 20 years. He was. So he would have clearly met that eligibility criteria. There's no question about that under the pre-existing law. But if you put yourself in the position of somebody who is entering pre-arrera and is trying to determine whether suspension of deportation is relief that would be realistically available to them, you'd have to think that they would act on in reliance on their ability to stay in the country for seven years and to remain undetected, only at which point they would qualify for suspension of deportation. And that not only seems to me as a factual matter somewhat far-fetched, but it's not clear that the law should attach significance to that is, sort of reliance. It's in view of the history of now ICE before INS. Weren't there a great many people who got here and just as this petitioner would just lived here for years and years and were never 
disturbed? As an, as an empirical matter, I think that's right, Justice Ginsburg, but I'm not sure that that necessarily means that that's a legitimate expectation or a reasonable reliance interest of the type that the Court would typically take into account in its retroactivity inquiry, because at the end of the day, what it is is a reliance interest that's predicated on essentially um, lack of prosecutorial resources or a favorable exercise of prosecutorial discretion in some sense. And the Court hasn't attached significance to that sort of reliance interest before. It's but more starkly, if I continue to violate the law for seven years, I can count on this kind of treatment. That's an odd reliance interest. That's right. And especially, particularly taking into account that reasonable reliance, the category of reasonable reliance is designed to take, is designed yeah, to yeah, account for its fairness interest. An elementary question, just to be sure we all agree on this. You do agree, do you not, that if in 1997 Congress passed a statute that said you should get an extra $50 penalty for having come in uh, back in 1981, that would not be permissible? Right. I think the, the presumption against retroactivity There's sort of an irony in the fact that the actual consequence here is a great deal more serious. Well, the, the consequence of removal is more serious yeah. than, in some sense, than a $50 penalty. That's right. But this, this, this is a person — It's constitutionally prohibited, but the consequences here are, are permitted. I understand the analysis. It's like just saying we take away one ground for, for staying that we didn't have before. But — Looking at it in kind of a basic sense, it seems it's a fairly serious thing. That, that, that's right. That happens and it affects an awful lot of people, doesn't it? Sure. I think it affects uh, uh, anyone who had illegally reentered, at least. But it's important to bear in mind that this is somebody who was already subject to a removal order. So in some sense, sending them back out of the country puts them in the same position that they would have been in under the old removal order. And so insofar as it has that effect on him, I think it's different than a $50 penalty that attaches to the primary conduct of illegal reentry as such. Do, do you read uh, the Tenth Circuit opinion as indicated it might have had a different result if he had been married before the enactment of the statute? There, there is that suggestion, I think, in Judge McCall's opinion, and that's — How does that fit with the Court's theory? With the, with the Tenth Circuit's theory? Yes. or? I think the idea was — I think what the Tenth Circuit failed to recognize was that adjustment of status was categorically unavailable to somebody who illegally reentered before ARERA, at least before 1994. And what Judge McConnell presumed was that it would have been available. And his point was that even if it would have been available, it's far-fetched to think that somebody would have thought not only about coming into the country, but coming into the country and then meeting a United States citizen and become married to the United States citizen and using that as sort of a reliance basis for um, not applying the law retroactively to somebody who had come in beforehand. But I think that was based on a misimpression about the availability of adjustment of status. Now, I'd like to address briefly, if I could, the uh, argument at step one of the land graph inquiry concerning the negative inference that petitioner seeks to draw from the before or after clause, so-called before or after clause. And the two provisions can be compared side by side at pages two and three of the government's brief, and that's in the body of the government's brief. And the fundamental flaw with the argument at step one is that the before or after clause in the old provision, which is at the bottom of page two, referred by terms to the date of the INA's enactment. Now, what we've reflected is the codified version, which refers specifically to the date of June 27, 1952. But even the INA itself referred to the date of the enactment of this Act, which can only be seen to refer to the INA itself. So if this language had been carried forward in Section 1231A5, it still would have been a reference to the date of the enactment of the INA. So it would refer to somebody who was deported before or after 1952. Now, I think, as Justice Alito suggested, the probable reason that Congress decided not to carry forward this language is because the question of whether someone was deported, deported before or after 1952 doesn't have a great deal of practical significance at this point in time. But whatever one might think was the actual reason for Congress's failing to carry forward the language, I don't think that you can draw any negative inference from Congress's failure to carry forward that language, at least certainly not the negative inference that Petitioner wants to draw. In fact, the negative inference that one would draw if one were going to do so is that the Section 1231A5 applies only to people who were deported initially after 1952. But that sort of negative inference wouldn't be of much assistance to Petitioner or any other person, for that matter, that illegally reentered before ARERA, at least as a practical matter, because everybody, I think, in that category would have illegally reentered or would have been deported after 1952, rather. I'm not sure that gives the other side the 
you know, the benefit of, of their argument. I, I think what they're arguing is uh, not just uh, th that it was deleted, but that it was not replaced by whether before or after, and then filling in the date of IRERA rather than the date of, uh, of the INA. I have, nobody thinks that they would leave, leave in June 27, 1952, but why wouldn't they have substituted for, for that the date of this new legislation? the date of IRERA. I think that's the point he's making. Well, I, and isn't there something to that? I, it's, there's certainly not enough there to make the argument that he's making, I don't think, because what was — what Congress did was to replace that provision with utter silence. And from that utter silence, I don't think there's any way to read into it that Congress meant for the applicability of Section 1231. Just getting rid of old language that was no longer — That's right. — or intentionally not adding new language. That's right. I don't think there's any way to read into it the inference that Congress meant to hinge the applicability of Section 1231A5 on ARERA's enactment date. There never was a proposal on the table to hinge Section 1231A5's applicability on ARERA's enactment date. The only possibility was to keep the old provision in the statute books unaffected, and the decision not to do that doesn't have the negative inference that Petitioner suggests. If the Court has no more questions. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Gossett, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, only a few points I want to make. Uh, the first is that uh, illegal reentrants, uh, reasonable expectation that they, that they might grow into relief, as, as Mr. The, the Chief Justice said, uh, not only is reasonable but has a statutory basis. Uh, Suspension of deportation and cancellation of removal by their very terms are only available to aliens who were illegally present in the United States for the relevant time period. And therefore, uh, th these forms of relief specifically exist to, uh, for such aliens. Uh, that people have a reasonable reliance interest in unlawful acts over time is also demonstrated by such doctrines as the doctrine of adverse possession, uh, statutes of limitations, latches, etc. Um, second, Justice Breyer, you're, uh, it is the case that were uh, he to have been have left after the enactment of this act, he would be kept out for inadmissible for five years. That's 8 U.S.C. 1182 A6B. Uh, because he had re-entered the country within five years of his 1981 deportation, he under the government's interpretation of that statute, he would be inadmissible for five years uh, from even if he were to re-leave in uh, 1996, he would have been ineligible to re-enter for five years. So a person who just leaves voluntarily, uh, having re-entered illegally, cannot come back for five years no matter what, under 1156A6B. That's the, the former version. That was repealed in 1996. But, but yes, that would have uh, as part of IRIRA. But if he had waited till IRIRA took effect, then it would have been, uh, he would have been subject to this provision. Um, Thank the, you, Mr. Gossett. Thank you. Thank you. Case is submitted.